The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, we're going to continue our series this, this week, and uh, we're in our second part of the series, Hero. And if you'd like to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to begin reading at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the fruit of the the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Let's come before God in prayer. Heavenly Father, a moment ago, Bobby prayed that uh, without you, we are nothing. I pray, I echo that prayer as well, and, and I ask that that reality would sink deep into our hearts and souls this morning. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, last week we kicked off our series we entitled Hero, and for those of you who were here, you'll know that we looked to Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1, which says, God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And we saw how from the beginning it was God's plan to multiply his image through humanity. He was going to fill the earth with his image. He was going to subdue the earth with his image. He was going to rule the earth with nothing but his good and perfect, pleasing image. But what we discover, as we, just by living in this world and keeping our eyes open for five minutes, is as we discover that we have multiplied, oftentimes a broken image. We have filled the earth with a distorted image. We have subdued and ruled the earth with an often twisted, sickly image of God. And so what I want to do this morning is to ask the very simple question, what went wrong? How did this image come to be so distorted in us in the first place? And what do we continue to do today to distort and twist the image of God in ourselves? But I also want to ask the important question, what does our hero do? What does our hero know and do that we don't? Remember, we said last week that that Jesus is the only hero that the Bible ever talks about because he's the only one who perfectly reflects God's good and perfect and pleasing image into this world. And and so just to be clear, what we're asking this morning is, is what has been done and what do we continue to do to distort God's image in us? And what does our hero do? What does Jesus do? to perfectly reflect that image. In order to do that, I want to start out here this morning by reading two stories alongside each other, two stories which are very familiar to us. One is taken from Genesis, which we just read. The other is from Matthew. Um, Both of them are stories about temptation, the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden and the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. 
And as we read these two stories alongside each other, I think we'll see that they touch at many different points and they inform each other. So to begin at the beginning, we're told that Adam and Eve were placed in that beautiful, beautiful garden. And we're told that the serpent approaches the woman and says, did God really say you cannot eat from any of the trees in the garden? Do do you see what he's doing there? Straight away, he's, he's raising doubts about God's provision for them. He's saying, can you really trust God to sustain you? Isn't God keeping something back from you? Shouldn't you be thinking about sustaining yourself? Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And for 40 days and for 40 nights, he fasted. He prayed and fasted, and at the end of them, he was hungry. And the devil appeared to him. The devil appeared to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Sustain yourself. Back in the garden, the woman was thinking, No, no, wait. She says, We can eat from any of the trees in the garden. But the Lord God did say, Don't eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and do not touch it or you will surely die. So the devil took Jesus to the holy city, to the middle of the holy city where the temple was and had him stand at the top of that temple, the highest point, and said, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. But I'll die. You will not surely die, said the serpent to the woman in the garden. For it is written, said the devil to Jesus in the wilderness, that he will send his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands and you will not strike your foot against a stone. So Jesus was taken to another very high place and was shown in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, all the kingdoms of the world, their splendor and their authority has been given to me and I give it to whom I choose. So, If you will bow down and worship me, it will all be yours. It will all be yours, said the devil to Jesus in the wilderness. You will be as God, said the serpent to the woman in the garden. And this is where our stories diverge. They go their separate ways. They part company because both these stories have very different endings. We're told in Genesis that that, that Adam and Eve in the garden, with those words still ringing in their ears, you will be as God, reached out and took the fruit. But Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. I think just by reading these two stories alongside each other, I I think it becomes very clear that what we've got here in this story of Adam and Eve in the garden is not, as some think, a children's story. This is not a cartoon about a squabble over a piece of fruit. This is not about eating an apple. This is not about breaking some sort of divine diet plan. This is also not a story about someone breaking some random arbitrary rule, stepping on the cracks in the sidewalk when you meant to avoid them. This is also not a story about some capricious, uh, petty deity who enjoys laying traps for people. That's not what this is about. This is a story about power. It is about a deep-seated lust and desire for power. 
and how we have gone about redefining human flourishing. It's about the kind of power that says, I will sustain myself, I will cheat death, I will be God. It's the, it's the kind of power that says, I don't need God to sustain me, I will sustain me. I, I don't need God to, to grant me life, my life is my life and it's in my hands. I, I don't need God, I will be as God. Of course, the trouble with, with this whole mindset and premise, of course, is that God has designed us, he's designed you, he's designed me, every one of us, to thrive and to flourish around himself. Human beings have been designed to thrive and flourish around God. This is a story about how human beings have, how we have pursued power instead and have we have redefined what it means to thrive and flourish as a human being around that pursuit. Now, now, there are all sorts of ways that we, that we can pursue power, right? All sorts of ways. But we must understand that every time we, every selfish bid for power, every pursuit of power is a radical redefinition of what it means to thrive and flourish as a human being. So, so for example, in the garden, they're, they're offered knowledge. Knowledge is presented. This is the path to power. If you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be as God. This is the path to power. That This is how you will thrive and flourish as a human being. And so Adam and Eve, they reached out, they took the fruit. This is how I will sustain myself. This is how I know my life is in my hands. This is how I will thrive and I will flourish. Of course, that. There are many other ways. We've said before there are many other ways that people pursue power. For some, it's knowledge. For others, it might be something like rank and position. And it doesn't matter what room they're in. This is their path to power. So it doesn't matter where they are at home, at the office, at church. They're always vying for position and climbing that ladder. This is how I will sustain myself. This is how I know my life is in my hands. This is how I will thrive and flourish. Still for others, it's sex. They use it to manipulate, to control their environment, to get what they want. Others, it's money. And, and if I can just earn more money, then I'll be able to manipulate and determine the course and destiny and outcome of my life. This is how I will sustain myself. This is how I know that my life is in my hands. This is how I know I will thrive and I will flourish. And on and on the list goes. Every single one of us here this morning, you, me, everyone, has something... At least one thing, at least one thing about which we say, if I could exercise and pursue power like this, then I will thrive and I will flourish as a human being. Now, now whatever that something and that one thing is, or maybe there's several things, but whatever that something is, over the years, if it goes unchecked, our affection for it just grows and it grows. And, and soon it will come to, to consume your days and your hours. It will fill your your thoughts and your dreams, and it will have your undivided attention and affection. What, what did I just describe there? What, what am I describing? When I say that something, something can have your undivided attention and affection, that something can fill your thoughts and your dreams, that, that it will consume your days and hours, what, what is that a description of? It's worship. Exactly, that, that is worship. That is a description of worship. In other words, whenever we pursue power and we define human flourishing around that particular pursuit, there you will find your idol. It always ends in idolatry. It always ends in some sort of 
false worship. It always does. This is why, in the end, that's what it comes down to. Out in the desert, Jesus in the desert with the devil, that is what that comes down to. In the end, the, desert, the devil, in the end, shows him all the kingdoms of the world, says, says it will all be yours if what? If you will worship me. If you will worship, it always comes back to worship. If you will worship me, it will all be yours, says the devil to Jesus in the wilderness. You will be as God, said the serpent to the woman in the garden. Now, look, whenever you receive an offer like that, you know, the kind of too-good-to-be-true offer, you will be as God or it will all be yours. Whenever you come across an offer like that, you know, it's always a good idea to read this small print. Because... Yeah, because every idol, I don't know if you know this, but every idol comes with a tag, and on that tag there is the small print, and the small print says the same thing every single time. And here is what it says. The idols of nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do those who trust in them. Did you, did you catch that last line? Those who make them become like what? Like their idols. And so do those who trust in them. This is a law of the human heart. The way we've been designed. We will become what we worship. We will become what we worship. Let me give you an illustration of how I think this, this, this happens and, and works. So we know the moon, right? It shines at night. And for a long time, they try to figure out, well, what's the source of light that the moon has, right? How come it shines at night? Where's the light coming from? And then they realize, oh, the moon doesn't have any light of its own. The only reason why it shines at night is because it's reflecting the sun's light, right? The sun's beams are bouncing off it. It's like this gigantic mirror. We all know this. We will God as long as we're looking at him. As long as he's the one who consumes our hearts and minds, fills our thoughts and dreams, has our days and hours. As long as we worship God, we will reflect God. But the moment we turn to an idol, the moment we turn to an idol, we will begin to reflect. If we worship an idol, we will begin to reflect the image of that idol instead of the image of God. And our humanity that part of us that reflects God's image. Remember our definition last week about what it means to be human, right? Do you remember that? Our humanity, that part of us that reflects God's image, will shrink and shrink away. Have you ever seen this? Have you ever seen this? Have you ever seen someone being consumed by their own idol? Maybe you've even seen it happening in your own heart. I know I've seen it happen in my heart. More times than I even want to mention and, and more times than I ever want to see again. If you've never seen this, let, let me try and describe it to you. Well, one of the most chilling, disturbing experiences that I have ever had was to sit by someone's deathbed. Someone who was dying. A friend of ours who we loved and cared about. And this friend was obsessed with. All he could talk about was money. Every single conversation that we had or tried to have ended up on money. It certainly had his undivided attention and affection. It consumed his hours and his days. It filled his thoughts and dreams. And the only way I can describe it, it it's as if we could no longer, it was impossible to connect with him. 
It was impossible to connect with him. It's as if that human part of him, that part of him that reflects God's image, had shrunk. It had grown smaller and smaller, and all that was left was this endless monologue about money. Um, This is why, by the way, this is why moralism and legalism, this is why they never have worked, they don't work, and they never will work. Legalism, moralism, it, it doesn't, this is what, what I just described to you is the reason why it doesn't work. Okay, because, let, let's take another example. So, so there's a woman who dresses badly, always immodest, using her sexuality to manipulate, to control, to get, to get what they, they want, to control their environment. And the moralist looks at this woman and says, well, what we need to do is write her more rules. So her dress, your dress can't come down below here, and, and, and it can't come above here. And, and there are, there's actually a Christian college which actually started measuring girls' hemlines. And they actually banned polka dot dresses in case the polka dots fell in the wrong places. I, I wish I were making that up, but I'm not. So, <laughs> so what I was thinking was what we could do is attach some uh, sensors at the doors here at TBC, which, which would measure hemlines, and there'd be like this loud siren, bah, 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 and then, then, we would, then we'd know, right? This is the answer. You see, the trouble is the legalist and the moralist looks at someone like my friend, consumed by money, obsessed with the love of money, and, 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 sa- and says, well, we just need to write him some specific rules. So what we need to do is talk about specific dollar amounts. Then we can tell people, yes, you're being generous, or no, you're being greedy. So, so what I was thinking is maybe here at TBC, uh, once a month, not every Sunday, just, just the first Sunday of each month, we'd make it uh, the Sunday where we all have to produce our financial statements and, and we could present them to the elders for review. I can just imagine how that would go for me. I'd present my financial statements and there'd, there'd be like this big red flashing light and uh, I'd be like, is that, is that a good sign? Have you ever known a red flashing light to be a good sign? So we can, we can list sins and, and, and we, can, we can make rules to address those sins and then we can make more rules to reinforce those rules we've already got. But, but I don't think that's what this particular story is about. Not, not this story. I think that the author of Je- if we did that, the author of Genesis would say, no, no, you, you don't get this, do you? Adam and Eve only had one rule and they couldn't keep that. The, the, the question is, why did they break that rule in the first place? And that is a story about, and let me just summarize what we've said so far. That is a story about power and the grip that power has on our hearts. And the reason why power has such a grip on our hearts is we have become utterly convinced that this is how I will thrive. This is how I will flourish. We've redefined what it means to thrive and flourish as a human being. And so I worship in that direction. And an idol appears before me. And I don't know if, if I chose an idol and worshipped it or if my worship produced an idol. I, I'm not sure, but, but an idol appears before me and I begin to look more and more like my idol. So much so that it becomes nearly impossible to tell where my idol ends and where I begin. We're bleeding, we're bleeding into each other and my, my idol grows and grows and my humanity shrinks. No, not just my humanity. All our humanity shrinks in the shadows of our idols. And this is why 
I can guarantee you, when you see it, if you haven't seen it before, when you see it for the first time, someone being consumed by their idol, maybe you've seen it happening in your own heart. If it's for the first, if for the first time you see it happening in your heart, let me guarantee you, you're not going to be sitting there thinking, well, I, I need to write some more rules here. What you'll, I'll tell you what you'll be doing. You'll be praying and you'll be pleading, please, God, release me or release my friend from this idol. Help me to stop this false worship. Help me to turn my heart back to you in true and real and honest worship. That's what you'll be doing. I guarantee it when you see it for the first time. Well, in, in this tragedy, which, oh man, Genesis chapter 3 is the very definition of a tragedy, isn't it? In this tragedy, there is, there is still hope. That there is actually still a, there's this promise of one to come. There is this promise of a hero in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 of the hero who is going to come and crush the head of the serpent. What will this, how will this hero prevail? How will our hero prevail? What will he do that Adam and all of Adam's sons have failed to do over and over and over again? Well, for a start, For a start, he is never going to give in to this lust for power. He will never pursue and lust after power. But Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself. Key words there, he made himself nothing. He humbled himself. He became a servant. Nothing. Humble. Servant. He will never lust and pursue after power. And because he never pursues power, his humanity will never shrink in the shadow of an idol because he will have no idols. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And because he has no idols, he will only ever worship God. And because he only ever worships God, he will only reflect God. Remember, you become what you worship. He will only reflect God. So much so, so much so that it will become impossible to tell the two apart. They'll bleed, they'll bleed into each other. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus makes it very, very clear that our humanity, remember our definition of that, that part of us that reflects the image of God, our humanity, is bound up, is tied to our worship who we worship, or what we worship. And so repentance, if we're going to talk, we've got to talk about repentance, right, this morning. Repentance is not just about turning away from something, but it is turning towards something. It's not just about turning away from our lust for power and all the idols that that produces, but it is a turning toward God in true and real and honest worship, worship in spirit and in truth. And apparently, that kind of genuine worship begins with this radical self-emptying, this emptying of self. He made himself nothing. He became a servant. He humbled himself. This is where true worship begins. This is why Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, 
The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. And Jesus invites us, he invites you and me today into the same radical emptying of self, this self-emptying, when he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Philippians said that Jesus made himself, say it with me, nothing. Jesus made himself nothing. Jesus says, the son can do what apart from the father? Nothing. And Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. There's this radical self-emptying, this emptying of self. Which is why Jesus says, then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. You know, these stories that we've been reading alongside each other this morning invite you and and me to to, uh, see our own bids for power, our own selfish and rather pathetic bids for power. In the vast and epic epic story of these, these bids for power that have been going on from time immemorial and still plague the human story today. What I'd like to do this morning is just close up here by looking at two more stories very quickly here. Two stories which I think go together, not just because one references the other, but because both of these stories address this, this, this issue of our pursuit and lust for power, the idols that that produces, the, um, the dehumanizing effect that those idols have on us, that false worship has on us, and of course the decision that we're all faced with concerning who we will worship. So I'm just going to read this story to you. Hitler started marching out across Europe, pursuing power, of course, because Hitler had a very clear idea what he, what he thought it meant for a human being to thrive and flourish, and he was determined that every one of us would, would take on the image of that idol. And so in the summer of 1940, more than 350,000 soldiers were trapped at Dunkirk. The German forces were on their way, and they had the capacity to wipe out the British expeditionary force. Hitler's panzer divisions were just miles away in the hills of France. The Royal Navy didn't have enough ships to rescue more than 17,000 men. In a speech to Parliament, Winston Churchill called the events in France a colossal military disaster. When it seemed certain that the Allied forces at Dunkirk were about to be massacred, a British naval officer cabled just three words back to London, but if not, but if not. I'll I'll tell you what those words mean in in a moment. Um, But they had a powerful effect on the British public at that time. Families and fishermen heard about the poignant telegraph message, and they answered. From the streams and estuaries, Trawlers and tugs, scows and fishing sloops, lifeboats and pleasure craft, coasters and island ferry, all of them manned by civilian volunteers, English fathers sailing to rescue England's exhausted, bleeding sons, made their way to Dunkirk. From May 29th to June 4th, it was one of the most remarkable naval operations of all time, and it went on in the face of incredible artillery bombardment, navigating through the minefields and U-boats, and remember, most of these boats didn't have any weapons. Original estimates said only a comparative handful of troops might be rescued at Dunkirk, but in the end, the, raging, the, the, the ragtag 
ragtag civilian armada brought home over 338,000 men safe to the shores of England. But when Gary told that story a couple of years ago, I, I was sat somewhere back, back there on that side. And uh, it just so happened my father-in-law was, was with us that, uh, that Sunday morning. And he leaned over and said something to, to Julia, and I didn't catch what he said. So Julia leant over to me and he said, and Julia said, oh, he, he says his dad, my grandfather, was one of those young men who was rescued at Dunkirk. And it just gave me chills as, as the, the impact of what that meant. I mean, it means I wouldn't have my wife, if it wasn't for these people who sacrificed who, for this event, I wouldn't have my wife or my father-in-law. But, but, I wouldn't, I would, <laughs> but, but I wouldn't have my wife. So, so I'm indebted to these people who could understand and not just understand, but were capable of being moved by a three-word message. Remember that message that was telegraphed, cabled back to them from that officer trapped to Dunkirk? But if not. But if not. These words were instantly recognizable to him, to, to, to the people back there who were a little bit more biblically literate than, than nowadays. Um, and they instantly recognized it as a quote from the book of Daniel. And, and the officer who cabled those three words was evoking that whole situation in the book of Daniel. And here's the situation. Here's the context. And so this is our other story, right? Alongside that story. This is the other story. And, and this, the, the situation he was evoking was this. Israel had been taken into captivity. They were in Babylonian captivity. They had been overwhelmed by an unimaginably powerful army, the most powerful army the world had ever seen at that point. And, and they had been brought into exile in Babylon. And now they were under the rule of, of this Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, who only knew and only recognized his own insatiable, unbridled lust for power. And in his unbridled lust for power, he had put up an idol and he had commanded that everyone should bow down and worship this idol on pain of death. But there were three young, brave Hebrew men who refused to bow down and worship. And so they stood before this king, the most powerful king this, the world had ever seen to that point. And and they have this choice. They're going to be judged and condemned by him, but they have this one more opportunity to save their skins but lose their humanity as they bow down to this idol or hold on to their humanity and be thrown into the fiery furnace. And here's what they say. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Old Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. As some translations put it, but if not, we will not bow the knee. The message cabled by that British officer at that time was clear. The situation was desperate. They were about to be massacred. It would take a miracle to save them. Maybe God would save them. Maybe he wouldn't. Maybe he would save them. But if not, but if not, we will not bow the knee. Did God really say you cannot eat from any tree in the garden? It is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. 
You will not surely die, said the serpent to the woman in the garden. It is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test, said Jesus to the devil in the wilderness. But you will be as God, said the serpent to the woman in the garden. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only, said Jesus to the devil in the wilderness. Let us pray. Let's come before God in prayer. And as we do, I just want to invite the worship team up again. Just want to invite the worship team up, and I want to invite the, those of you who are elders here, if you would just come forward as well. If you're an elder here this morning, would you just come and stand at the front? So, Heavenly Father, you are all that we need to thrive and to flourish as human beings. You alone sustain us, our lives are in your hands, because you alone are God. But Father, we have pursued power and we have worshipped idols, so many of them we can't even count them. And at times we have been consumed by them. At times we look just like them. For those of us who are struggling with this perhaps more fiercely than ever before, I pray and I plead, please help us turn from our idols Don't let your image in us, the last vestiges of our humanity, disappear or be consumed by our own unbridled lust for power. Maybe this morning you would like to follow Jesus into true worship. Whatever that idol is that has his grip on your heart, you want rid of it. Maybe it's time to empty yourself before Jesus Maybe for the first time, or maybe once again. I want to give you an opportunity to do that this morning. Start that journey. During the singing of our closing song, feel free to come down to the front to pray with an elder. There will be elders at the front here who would love to, to pray with you, to talk with you, and help you begin that journey. So, Father, we repent of our idolatry. Give us a grace, give us a mercy, give us a strength to turn and forsake our idols and turn back to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us as we sing together?
brought your word and your truth. Lord, may be you above all things in our lives. May it be you that dominate our thoughts and control our emotions. May you be the one idol that we worship. So, Father, we give all that we are to you. Lord, as we go our way, it's our desire that in all we do, those who watch us would know our love for you. Father, we worship you not only this day, but in all we do, in Christ's name we go. Amen. You're dismissed.